Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode 253. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Prilliman, and I am joined this evening, afternoon, morning drive to work by the one and only Jacob Malici. Hello, this is Jacob. And we have a fun-filled, action-packed episode for you today, tonight, going through that whole spiel again. We're going to be going over the Magic Core 2021 release notes. And to do that, we have a blast from the past. So Wait, let's give a welcome to Uptown Dunks. Hey, everybody. Dunks. Yep. The one and only uh, Jess Dogs. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Uh, this is Jess. So I'm so glad to be back on the show. <laughs> if you've not been listening for very long, you don't know what that means. Uh, but about <laughs> about a year ago, I left the show. I had been a host for a long, long time. And I'm so glad to be back on the show for an episode. I had meant to do this much sooner. And life circumstances kind of got away from me. Uh was, but here we are. I was hoping for like a Troy McClure, like you might recognize me from such episodes as, <laughs> as this episode batch of 33 through yeah. 219. Yeah, right. Yeah, 33 was where we started, wasn't it? It was it was a, a long long time. You know, I should have stayed out uh, stayed in until I hit 200 episodes. Yeah. Dang. So, Miss, Mr. Dunks uh has yeah. Well, it's been a year since we've uh, since we've really talked on the on the show. Uh, what have you been up to since then? Uh, so uh, I uh, sold a house and moved to Portland. For those of you that don't know, uh, my girlfriend is uh, Nicolette Apprise, and she is uh, she's the the program the magic program manager at Judge Academy. And so when she got that job, we uh, we moved here to Portland, where I live now. And uh, I had intended to start back up with school uh, this coming fall uh, so I could finish off uh, my bachelor's degree. Uh, but right now is not looking like the best time to do that. And if you're listening later, we are in the middle. At least I hope it's not, it's <laughs> at least the middle of, uh, of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And, uh, so I haven't, I haven't, uh, set up to continue with school yet because even if the schools are, are open for business, I'm not sure that's where I want to be right now. Yeah. If you, if you have the ability to, to not. <laughs> uh, right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I haven't, other than, uh, other than going grocery shopping, I think other than going grocery shopping and one other minor but important trip, I haven't left my house for like three or four months. Yeah. Uh, um it's been it's been nuts and uh i definitely need a haircut oh my god but i'm not you know i don't like protest in the street or anything for that i don't know what (laughs) Uh, that's like so (laughs) (laughs) that is i i have left that other than like grocery store and like home depot and stuff like that like i i did sneak out for a haircut once and then like nothing nothing else you get well, on you're this in long Florida, right? So, yeah. so you you can get a haircut if you want to, because they just decided that the disease doesn't exist there. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, we can <laughs> we can get into why that is after in, in the in the in the Patreon part of the the episode. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's not even like it's really not just the 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 government attitude. Like I see that attitude everywhere, you know. And I just want to tell people 
who are out there not wearing masks, not not taking care to distance from people. I just want to be like the the pandemic's not over just because you're bored with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I'm rambling on. I apologize. No, we no, have, no. Uh, it's fine. We have it's some actual it's, stuff to get into here. It is absolutely fine to say that kind of thing and. If someone's listening and they're saying like, ah, I don't think I need to wear a mask, we need to say it more, more and more. Wear wear a mask. Social distance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, there are people that I have to interact with, uh, no matter how much I want to social distance. There are people that are that are forced to interact with and there are people out there that are forced to interact with people every day. And uh, I don't wear a mask so much just for my protection, uh, because Frankly, statistically, if I were to get this illness, I would be in pretty good shape comparatively, but I wear a mask to make sure that if I do get it or if I'm asymptomatic Mm -hmm. and I don't know I have it, I'm not passing it to those people who would have really serious problems and possibly die. And those are the people I'm I'm concerned about. Uh, And I say that specifically because I've had had people pointedly ask me, oh, are you just afraid all the time and that's why you wear this mask? No. Uh, I mean, yes, a little bit because I don't like the idea of getting sick, but I'm not like quaking in my boots here I, I believe that we can work together to make it all better for everybody and that's part of what wearing a mask is and uh it blows my mind when people are like you can't make me wear a mask in costco uh and uh, yeah i have stories about that because i go to costco but uh <laughs> um but yeah it's just it's just been crazy the uh the range of reactions i see and um and how people feel about all of this and feel very strongly without any evidence whatsoever. When they, they have very strong opinions, yeah. and it's kind of a it's that's, kind of an object lesson in everything else we deal with. I mean, that's not um, exactly new. Uh, it's just really in our faces now because we're right. dealing with something that literally could be life or death, right? Yeah, and uh-huh. and still we see that. And I'm with you, Jess. Yes. If there's anything, I'm terrified. Like I am terrified. But what I'm terrified of is that through, if I don't take those precautions, if I don't wear a mask, that I could cause someone else to perish through my carelessness. Right. That right, and that's me. and that's one of the reasons I've been shocked when I see people saying, "Oh, well, my state's open, so I'm going to go to my pre-release." And I'm like, taking care of yourself and making sure that you're you're distancing from people does not mean be in the same room with them for five hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know you're talking, understand. you know you're, like, t- like talking is one of the things that spread things around. And we could we could actually record an entire episode just talking about pandemic, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. But so, it turns um... out we're... Man, I'm just... I, I gotta say, I, got, I gotta get this out there. Uh, <laughs> it is so cool to have you on JudgeCast, uh, Jess. It's also very weird for me, uh, because when I started listening to JudgeCast, it was you, Brian, and CJ. And to be in a position where I'm, I guess, technically one of the hosts and you're our guest, it's just, you know, I never well, thought I'd be in that technically. You, yeah. you, are, you are one of the hosts and I am your guest <laughs> and I appreciate just... immensely being on the show. It's a great opportunity. Um, and I'm really glad that, uh, that the two of you have kept on with the show because uh, JudgeCast is one of the, the long running kind of institutions of of uh the old and now the new judge program in my opinion uh it's been a resource for for judges who are uh not necessarily in a place to get traditional judge training uh, and mentorship from other people and now more than ever is a time for judge cast to be uh 
to be listened to, and I think it's going to be great for people. So if you want to get your Judge Cast uh, tote bag and mug, call this number, uh, and uh, <laughs> we've got operators for your, uh, running for your yearly contribution Patreon tier. <laughs> yeah, you know, if if Judge Cast was a person, we'd be starting middle school this coming up. Good night. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, it's absolutely true, and and uh, and it's not just you know I don't want to take too much credit because is is we definitely took JudgeCast and made it our own. But as Brian mentioned, I only started uh, episode like thirty three. JudgeCast was a thing that was somebody else's dream and somebody else's idea before I had ever even thought about it. And then eventually, I t- had the opportunity to to in some way have an influence on that and help shape it. And the fact that I did that doesn't lessen the impact of somebody like you, Jacob, who's going to take it and continue to influence it over your time on JudgeCast. Uh, that's mm-hmm. also going to be an impact on people. And there are going to be people who say, when I started listening to JudgeCast, it was Brian and Jacob. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that's going to be their memory of JudgeCast. And it's very hard to look at things from that perspective. Is I've been a, a judge for many years at this point. We don't need to go into how many. Uh, and there are people that are just starting judging and uh, that blows my mind. Yeah. yeah. And that, <laughs> that continues to be true every year. And the longer we've been at it, the more that is like a, whoa, <laughs> especially like some of them right. are older than me and starting. And I'm like, boy, I thought I was old and starting late and it, it's different. Like they have a life experience. They have uh, stuff that I don't, you know, they're teaching me and it's, it's it's just it's very cool but it you know it's different mm-hmm. anyway uh why don't we talk about the cool cool stuff with yes. core 2021 this great new magic set that i got boxes of on friday <laughs> i am excited about this magic set i i haven't gotten any boxes of it uh it uh like all sets now was released early on magic arena so i've seen people playing with some of the cards uh in uh in historic actually i haven't played much standard but i have played a lot of historic i love it Hmm. And uh, uh, the, the there's a shrines deck that's apparently viable in mm-hmm. uh, in historic. <laughs> We're going to do that in a second. Oh yeah, um, get some Kamigawa uh, throwbacks, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, Kamigawa. Uh, that was a, such a fantastic set. Um, and shrines were definitely constructed all stars in Kamigawa. Look, I have I have a casual shrine Zubera deck that I'm very very excited that I get to I get to update. <laughs> and you guys don't care. <laughs> Casual Shrine Zubra yes. is my Alice in Chains cover band. <laughs> wow. It's, I like it. All right. All right. So uh, are there any new mechanics in this set? Not as such. No. Uh, okay. They've, they've decided to attribute a name to a mechanic that uh, it's, it's sort of been in the search for a name. But colloquially, it's had a name for a long time, uh, and it has finally, I guess, become official uh, in that mill is now a real magic rules word. Uh, uh-huh. it, is, it is not really a new action, because we've had plenty of cards that do this thing throughout magic's history, uh, but now the keyword action mill has been introduced for Core 2021. Uh, we used to say, put the top x cards of whoever's library into their graveyard and that now is mill x uh and we used to say it as you know mu mill two or u mill three or or whatnot but 
technically speaking, that was never actually codified in the rules. Um, and this actually, interestingly, uh, comes with some oracle changes. Uh, so basically, if there's a card that said, put cards on top of library into graveyard, they, they're usually getting that updated to mill blank. So like Milliken actually says in the cost, now tap mill one, add colorless. I think that's what that card says. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they look so at the mill even, card. even more flavorful now? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Milliken has the mill keyword action, as does millstone, obviously. Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, yep. One thing you'll notice about this, some of these Oracle changes is that some of them um, kind of feel functional. Uh, so, for example, uh, cards that would have you mill cards and then tell you to do something with those cards uh, used to say something like, uh, and there's an example, and I can't remember the name of this card. So if somebody does, please jump in with it. But there's a card that says, uh, put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard and then if they share a color, repeat this process. Helm well, of Obedience? That, oh, no, not Helm of Obedience, but I think it got the same errata, actually. Uh, it doesn't say they, uh, or it didn't say those two cards or something of that effect. It actually is from among those cards. So there's a new card that, that says that if you would mill cards, instead mill twice that many, and I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, now, if you if you would perform a comparison, you're looking at all of those cards. So in this case, if the four cards you milled have two that share a color, then then it would trigger that ability. Uh, mm-hmm. Sphinx, Sphinx, tutelage. Sphinx's tutelage. Sphinx's yeah. tutelage, thank you. Yes, yeah. I, I couldn't remember the name of that card. Uh, its new wording uh, accommodates that uh, much better. So it's not just that they, ch- they added the word mill, but they actually paid attention to the functionality of the cards as well. And I am so glad I was not on that tedious project. Yeah, <laughs> right? Because there's a lot... It's a big update. It's, it's not quite as big as the... Uh, target creature player or planeswalker update i think in terms of number of cards impacted but it's another big yeah. update with a lot of fiddly bits yeah and this this was this was a change that sh- should have been done a long time ago i remember playing in 94 95 you know revised era and you called it milling back then like right that was and 26 I have a theory years about ago. why this i have a theory about why this uh, happened now uh, if you look at the article that announced uh, that they were going to be using uh, the keyword action mill, one of the things that it said is that they've begun to see it used in other games, which has been true for a long mm-hmm. time. If you played uh, Magic at any point, and then you went to some other game and milled someone, you would still use the word mill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I like, they. Yeah. it may be that there was some group that was trying to do this for a long time, but I wouldn't be surprised if somebody inside Wizards said, Hey, there could be a trademark problem here if we don't actually make this part of the game. Yep, sure. That that seems very very watsy. I I know uh, that from yeah. from reading articles in the past that uh, one of the reasons that this hadn't happened for a while was there was a concern that it was it wasn't evocative of what was happening and that that would actually be. Um, so that's a Rosewater thing. He said that yeah. in a ton of yeah. articles in his podcasts but... and also on Blogatog. Yeah. But if if everybody calls it something, you know, don't yep. don't try and fight it. Now, uh, yeah. Now let's let's talk about calling another name change. If we're ready to move on, I love this one. Yeah, I'm pretty hyped for this as well. I uh, was very happy. There there are um. So the answer to uh, who let the dogs out? Ken Ken is no longer the World Health Organization. If you've seen those memes, it's now Watsy. Uh, <laughs> They have 
changed they have changed the name or changed the type of all hounds and made them dogs. So dogs are I was surprised partners. that they did all of them. You yep. thought that they would just start with like now we have dogs but all previous hounds are hounds? No, I thought that they would draw a flavor line where hmm. like hellhounds or cerberus or something like that still maintain hound. Yeah, hound hound is a little more we'll say grown up and and respectable where dogs are just awesome but yeah i can i can see there's more like the serious guard dog you might want to call that like a hound or cerebrus or something like that but right yeah dog, no, dog uh, they all dogs seems now. A little less formal yes as opposed to as opposed to the very formal phrase whomst among us has let the dogs out <laughs> But now Which we is, have this thing where... Oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to point out that if you have not listened to the 99% Invisible podcast episode, Whomst Among Us Has Let the Dogs Out, it's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> and you should go do that r- right as soon as you're done with this episode. Uh, it's great. Sorry to plug another podcast. They no, didn't pay me to do that. It's, it's How very dare fun. you? What gives uh, you the right to come on to our podcast? And, and, and plug one of the most famous podcasts ever? Yeah. Yeah, my bad. Yeah, they uh, don't need it. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, I am curious, at going forward, you know, at the wolf-dog distinction, because for whatever reason in my yes. head, wolf-hound was a lot less blurry than wolf-dog, since they're both canines, and I don't, I don't know why. That doesn't make any sense, but... Uh, they're probably going to draw like some sort of civilization, civilized versus non-civilized, domesticated versus not domesticated. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that becomes problematic too. I agree. There's a lot of wild and feral dogs in magic art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. The ferocious pup boys, is a wolf. We'll leave it. So, we'll yeah, leave they it are up all to good them. boys. They're all good boys. Okay, the goodest, the goodest boys. Every last one of them. <laughs> so, uh, prowess. Would- yeah, it yeah, exists. Yeah, it's, it's 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 hey, yay, it's back. Okay, Moving but uh, we really it's like not spe- technically evergreen, but it might as well be. It's yeah, it's technically deciduous, I guess, which is a tree type for sure. <laughs> <laughs> They're talking about making phasing deciduous. Did y'all see that? We're gonna talk about that. No. Later. Okay. Yeah. Great. Phasing out specifically, not just phasing the the keyword. Wait, hold, on, hold on, they'll make phasing out deciduous, but phasing in, no, not so much. Well, what? not phasing the 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 keyword the 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 keyword phasing. They don't okay. want to make deciduous, but they're talking about making phasing out deciduous. Yeah, well, we'll talk about it when we get to the card in the set that cares about it. Yeah, there is a distinction there. I don't know if it's what I would be drawing very often. <laughs> But yeah, I can see where you're going with that. Anyway, so about prowess. Uh, yeah, we covered that. Good. Next, what's up yep. next after prowess? Um, well, there are these like cool enchantment things, right? With types, like we've we've uh-huh. never now shrines. Shrines are back. Uh, they brought shrines back because we're all building shrines these days, and they wanted to reflect that in in the magic. No, it's you know, they you know. They're legendary enchantments. They do cool things. What's interesting is that before, you know, these were enchantments that would trigger, they were non-legendary, right? If I recall correctly. And they would, or were the shrines before legendary? I actually wasn't playing that I much think, in Kamigawa. I think they were legendary. Were they? Uh, I'll find out. You just keep going. All right. So I don't know if they're. Anyway, they sorry, had a, They just had triggered abilities that, uh, that 
were affected by the number of shrines you control. They were, uh, now they were legendary. They were legendary. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So yeah, so that's that's the same. And here it's doing a similar thing. Only some of them aren't just triggered abilities that are like counting up the number of of shrines that you have to magnify their effect. But one of them is, get gives you a cost reduction on an activated ability that it has instead. So playing around a little bit with it, but all it is is just it's an enchantment type that if you've got it, there are cards of these type that care about. Yep, that's They're about fun. it. They're fun. Yeah. They're shrines cool. care about other shrines. It's a shrines. bit of a shrine ball you want to build. I mean, shrines are very insular. They only care about other shrines. And that's uh, it for like general mechanics on Core 2021. Nothing really new... Generally speaking, other than, again, we, we talked about phasing, but there's only one card that does it, and it's a mythic, so we'll just talk about it with that card, I think. So I like the direction they have gone with Corsets the last couple of years, at least, which is kind of just like a highlight and celebration of all of the magic planes and everything that is magic. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's it's a really great way to make the Corset its own distinct thing and keep people familiar with these different planes without throwing them headfirst into something new. A new player can play Corset 2021 and find something that they find relatively familiar because, oh, I can see that this is something from a set I recognize. But this one here, I have no idea about what is that. And somebody gets to tell them about Zendikar or whatever. Um, so would you say that the identity of Corsets was lost for a while, but after some seeking, they found a good thing for them to do, a good spot to really resonate? Yeah, and I think at this point you should probably insert a segue of some kind uh, to go to the first card. Uh, God, talk about uh, getting dunked on. <laughs> uh, so our first card that we're going to talk about, actually, because we're going to go through card-specific notes at this point, uh, is Azusa Lost But Seeking, which is obviously where he was going with that. Um, Azusa Lost But Seeking is a legendary creature human monk that costs two and a green. Uh, it is a one-two creature. It's actually a very uh, commonly seen card in green uh, commander decks, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say as I understand it because I play commander like you know a handful of times total. Um, but uh, the effect on the card is really neat. It says you may play two additional lands on each of your turns. Uh, there is some really cool. Uh, stuff that goes along with that rules wise and some of it has even changed over the years um so the effect is cumulative cumulative with other effects so if you have a an azusa lost but seeking and you have something else that says you may play one additional land per turn that gives you a total of three additional lands that you can play per turn um it used to be it's this weird thing where you could blink it in and out and get infinite land drops. That doesn't work anymore. You just count up the number of additional lands you can play on the on the battlefield, and if you haven't played that many lands, you can still play a land. Yep. Pretty simple. Uh, yep. That means that if you play another Azusa Lost But Seeking, because it's legendary, you'll have to choose one with the legend rule and put the other in the graveyard, and uh, you don't get to play any more lands now that you have a new Azusa. It's just you still have a total of, of three land drops that you can play and if you play three lands well that's it you're done yep all right the next card is baron talarian archmage which is basically uh, a man of war on steroids uh it's a 2-2 legendary creature human wizard that says when baron talarian archmage enters the battlefield return up to one other target creature or planeswalker to its owner's hand 
Okay, and then at the beginning of your instep, if a permanent was put into your hand from the battlefield this turn, draw a card. So we're just going to go ahead and get the intervening if clause card out of the way early. Uh, the second trigger, the second trigger ability says at the beginning of your instep, comma if a permanent was put into your hand from the battlefield this turn, comma draw a card. So that means that that condition has to be true when the trigger goes on the stack. It has to be true. When the trigger resolves. Now, it's really, really unlikely that it's going to be true when it goes on the stack and not true when it resolves, just because of the nature of it. Uh, and, you know, Baron lets you, uh, gives you the ability to put a card back into your hand. So you should be able to finagle it. Now, even if you've put multiple permanents into your hand from the battlefield, you still only get to draw one card. Okay. It's not a, something that triggers for each card. Um, the, uh, uh, tokens are going to count even though they cease to exist when they hit your hand and the permanent that you return to your hand doesn't still have to be there so you can return it to your hand during main phase one cast it again well baron at the end of the, the turn is still going to see at the beginning of your instep is still going to see that you a permanent was returned to your hand um also finally uh baron's able to look back and see the entire turn even if baron wasn't on the battlefield the entire turn Okay, so if somehow something returned to your hand before, Baron comes into play, some reason the trigger, you know, you bounce an opponent's card, the triggered ability is going to look back and see the turn before Baron was on the battlefield. And the reason yep. for that is because the the trigger condition isn't when it went to the when it left the battlefield, it's at the end of the turn. It asks the question, did this happen this turn? Yep. So it, it looks to see if it should trigger it at the beginning of the end step, checks that intervening if condition. That's true. And it knows about the entire turn. There's actually another card we'll talk about that's also doing that same kind of evaluation, where it's it knows information about the turn from before its life on the battlefield. Uh, I guess that's me next. We're looking at Basri's lieutenant or lieutenant, depending on you know, what you're I'm pretty from. sure lieutenant is actually spelled with an F, though. I'm not sure about that, but uh, that's a... So, something to talk about maybe on a on a language podcast, I guess? A dialect <laughs> podcast? Dialect <laughs> podcast. Yeah, I'm sure there's many of those. Uh, anyway, uh, three and a white for a creature human knight. Three, four. Uh, the important thing about this one, so it's got vigilance and protection from multicolored. Uh, and it says when Basri's lieutenant, darn it, now I'm just doing it, uh, Basri's lieutenant enters the battlefield, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control. Okay. And then it says whenever Basri's lieutenant or another creature you control dies, if it had a plus one plus one counter on it, create a 2-2 white knight creature token with vigilance. All right. But going back to that first line, protection for multicolor. So protection. Uh, protection means can't be damaged, can't be enchanted or equipped, one might say attached, can't be blocked, can't be targeted by anything of that quality. So in this case, multicolored cards. Uh, you could either internalize that as debt or dat, depending on how pedantic you wish to be. Uh, so that's and anything with protection. It's going to be looking at uh, those are the things that it does. It doesn't protect from anything cards of that quality would do. So if there is a multicolored card that says everything, you know, return all creatures to their owner's hands, it'll still affect Basri's Lieutenant. But if it tries to target Basri's Lieutenant, well, it can't. Right, it can't damage it, can't attach to it, so auras and stuff can't attach to it, and 
nothing that's multicolored can block it. Uh, the second, so going on to the that second triggered ability, uh, so if the dying creature had multiple plus one plus one counters on it, it doesn't trigger multiple times, because it says if it had a plus one plus one counter on it rather than one or more, but it, in this case it, it means the same thing. It's just checking, did it have basically at least one? Because if it had two, it, well, it had a plus one plus one counter, so you only get one trick. Uh, lastly, if a creature with plus one plus one counters takes lethal damage from a creature with uh, infect or wither, so it gives minus one minus one counters, due to how state-based actions are evaluated, that creature will still have died with plus one plus one counters on it for the purposes of this trigger, even though state-based actions also processed those two counters annihilate each other. Because what will happen is the dies event is looking immediately before that state-based action actually applied to determine whether or not it would trigger, and immediately before state-based actions applied, it did have plus one plus one counter on it. The thing that, that trips some people up about that is that a lot of times when judges are studying state-based actions, the question they want to ask is, what's the order they're applied in? And there isn't one. They are Correct. applied at exactly the same moment. And this is one of the only things in Magic that does that. Yep. So it's yep. confusing. You go, you, you go from a state where I've got plus one, plus one counters and minus one, minus one counters to it's in the graveyard. Yes. <laughs> there, there is no in-between state. Exactly. Okay. Let's see. I guess I'm up with the next card. That would be a Celestial Enforcer. This is kind of uh, Amonkhet-y looking, isn't it? A little? Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, there's a whole thing with Amonkhet. The, the people of Amonkhet are still there. Hazaret's still around. It, it's a big flavor thing there. Um, so Amonkhet still exists. We could return to Amonkhet at some point and see all of the people, you know, fighting to uh, to to free themselves or to, to not free themselves, but to survive after. Anyway, let's most people are dead, but there's still a civilization. <laughs> um, so Celestial Enforcer has an activated ability, and, and it just says uh, pay two mana and tap to tap target creature. Uh, activate this ability only if you control a creature with flying. Uh, what's weird about that is that, that that's actually uh, basically a timing restriction that says when you can activate this. And it's weird because it's not like during your upkeep or during your turn or anything like that. It cares about what you control at the time you activate it. But that doesn't check again when it resolves like an intervening if statement would. It only checks when you activated it. So you can activate it. And then in response, someone destroys your creature with flying. The ability is still on the stack and uh, it's not going to fizzle or be removed from the stack because you don't control a creature with flying anymore. The only thing that affects is when you can activate this ability. The next card is Conclave Mentor. It's green and a white for a 2-2 uh, Centaur Cleric. Uh, if one or more, it says, if one or more plus one plus one counters would be put onto a creature you control, that many plus one plus one plus... <laughs> wow. When reading that... <laughs> Let me, it's let me, clearer let me... on the card than when you're vocal. Yeah, when it's on the card, so if one or more plus one plus one counters would be put on a creature you control, that many counters plus one plus one plus one counter are put on that creature instead. And when Conclave Mentor dies, you gain life equal to its power. Now, um, if a creature you control would enter the battlefield, normally when we think... You know, hey, if a counter is put on a creature I control, I've got the creature right there on the battlefield, something happens and it gets a counter put on it. Okay, clearly that's counters being put on it. But per the rules, when something enters the battlefield with counters, 
plus one, plus one counters. That's the same thing as that's also having counters placed on that creature. So if something enters the battlefield with plus one, plus one counters, it's going to get an additional uh, an additional plus one, plus one counter. Now, if something causes Conclave Mentor to enter the battlefield with counters, uh, the card's got a static ability that applies when it's on the battlefield, not it, it, it can't replace itself or give itself the plus one, plus one counter while it's entering the battlefield because it's got to be on the battlefield first. So it would not give itself an additional plus one, plus one counter if it somehow entered the battlefield with a counter. Now, if I have, because this is not legendary, if I have two Conclave Mentors or three or four, all of those replacement effects apply. So if I have two Conclave Mentors, I'm going to get two bumps. If I have three, I'm going to get three bumps. And that's... That's Conclave Mentor. Yeah, that, that middle bit is really because, as you said, that, that static ability has to exist to apply. And unlike other things where as it's entering the battlefield, the static ability of Conclave Mentor exists, it doesn't exist for itself as it's entering. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, I got this one. Cool. Uh, so the next card is a bit of a doozy. Uh, we've got a little conspicuous snoop. Got a cute little goblin looking in someone's window, which is not cool, but I guess no one told the goblin that. Uh, red Red for a 2-2 goblin rogue. Says, play with the top card of your library revealed. Everyone's size and coarser of crucifix. We know, we know. We'll get there. Uh, second line, you may cast goblin spells from the top of your library. And as long as the top card of your library is a goblin card, Conspicuous Snoop has all activated abilities of that card. Ooh, buddy. Okay. So, first off, play with the top card of your library review. So, because this also lets you cast goblins from the top of your library, there can be a situation inherent with this card, right, where you could change the top card of your library because you're in the process of casting a spell, right? This is also going to be true, what I'm about to say is also going to be true if you're playing a land off of another card we're going to talk about later off the top, or anything that activates an ability where it would change the top card of your library, any situation where the top card of your library changes as part of the process of doing something, you're not going to reveal the new top card until you finish completely doing that thing. Uh, the other way to look at this is you can't attempt to do something that may or may not be what you want to do to look at the next card. You can't go, I'm going to put this top card to the stack because it's a goblin to cast it, and then look at the next one and see if I actually want to do that or use it to like look down beneath. It doesn't work that way. You have to finish what you're doing before you'll reveal the next card. Now, while you're not while you're in that process and that next top card isn't revealed, you have a moment where Conspicuous Snoop doesn't have any abilities from top cards of your library, because if you're casting something off the top or doing something that's moving it off the top, you have a moment where it doesn't have any abilities even to the top card of your library because there's there's no top card of your library that you know to be a goblin for it to have abilities from uh other things like uh when you're casting goblins this doesn't let you ignore timing restrictions so unless the goblin has flashed you're still going to have to be in a main phase with an empty stack uh so anytime you can cast a sorcery for those activated abilities are anything that has the templating cost a colon and then the effect of that cost so anything that's templated like that, that's an activated ability. If it's on a goblin and it's on top of your library, Snoop's getting those abilities. Uh, let's see. What else have we got on this thing? There's a, a lot to talk about here. We've got 
Oh, sure. So if an activated ability of the top card of the top goblin card is referring to itself by name, anything that's referring to any card, time a card refers to itself by name, it really means this thing. So Snoop can still, the conspicuous Snoop can still activate those abilities. It's referring to itself rather than a card of the name of the card on the top of the library that it's inheriting that ability from, right? It just, it just means this thing. It's a shorthand for this thing. Uh, if a situation happens where it gains a pair of linked activated abilities, uh, that link will only work as long as it has those uh, abilities. If, if it loses those abilities, they don't look back to see the link. So if it loses them and then gains them again, it lost all of the information about what one of those pairs of linked abilities would do with the other one. I, I could wish I could think of an example of a goblin with a linked activated ability because I really feel like that one needs an example to understand. Uh, well, really, but I'm not... anything could be a goblin if you put conspiracy on the table. So really, just go with something. Sure, but like an activated. So yeah, I, I guess I'm blanking on an activated ability that's linked to another thing. I know they exist. Yeah, there's a, there's a few cards that's like pay mana to exile a card and then pay some more mana to do something to the exiled card. Like put it in the battlefield or, you know, put it back in the graveyard and gain some life, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so if you have if you have an effect like that, uh, right, that they, they would let you do one thing with an object and they'll let you do something with that object later, um, you know, that's only going to work as long as it has that ability. Right. So if it if it loses it, regains it for whatever reason, like you've you've um you know, the cards left the top of your library, but then it goes back, so it has the ability or, again. Or even lost. or even you just cast the first and then flip over the card and it's the same card. Right. Yeah. Right, even that. Uh it mm-hmm. won't it won't be referencing the things that, that one action was was talking about for the other one because it's a new it lost it and regained. It's a new instance of that set of linked abilities. It's got no idea about the previous set. Right. And the reason that this rule has to be this way is because if it were a different set of linked abilities, those things, they don't want them to be linked. So for example, oh yeah, if I had one, if I had one activated ability that said, you know, exile the top card of your library uh, and, uh, and you may cast it from exile. And then I had another set of linked abilities where it said, you know, pay a million mana and exile the top card of your library, and then uh, at the end of the turn, destroy all permanents with the same color as that card. And I'm just making stuff up, but it, it, we wouldn't want it to use the information from the previous ability. Mm. Uh, and so, so it just has to not remember. In order to make that work, it has to not remember the uh, the existence of of its previous ability, even if it's the same ability. Sorry for rambling about that, but the uh, no, it, I think yeah. that <laughs> any clarification on that point is going to be helpful because it, it's it, it's tricky. Yeah, uh, it's. It, I don't know. I'm I'm hoping this card's going to see play. I don't know if it is. Uh, I think in formats where there are enough goblins to matter, this one might not make the cut. Yeah, um, hmm. and we'll see. We'll see. Weirdly, I don't think it's going to see standard two, play. So a two-two for two that gives you pseudo card advantage is weirdly not good enough. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Because um, it's it 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 effectively gives the top card of your library kind of paste or so it does, ability. But it's in the wrong color. So the problem mm-hmm. is that goblins tend to be in red and sometimes black. Very rarely white. If guess if you're on Guilds of Ravnica, <laughs> um, 
uh, on Ravnica, I should say. But like this card, uh, it, it's not in a color that tends to let you manipulate your library library very well. Mm-hmm. So there's not a way. Once you get a card on top, there's not a good way to keep it there, and there isn't a good way to make sure you have that card on top, at least not efficiently. I mean, there are cards I could think of that do it, like you know, Goblin Harbinger or whatever, but they're just too expensive. Sorry, rambling on. Uh, yeah, we, I think we we, our, we could do more to contain you, but uh, I, I actually to... think it's valuable information. Oh, you should have said that you were going to contain the the length of the discussion. Anyway, <laughs> the next card is Containment Priest, um, and Containment Priest is a card that I'm really excited to see print. Actually, it's a reprint, but it's the first time that it's been printed in a uh, in a set. I'm pretty sure it's the first time yeah. it's been printed in a set that makes it modern legal. This was yep. this was uh, this was in a commander product, wasn't it? Right, mm-hmm. and so it's it's it was printed kind of for legacy and vintage. Uh, I don't know how much vintage play it sees, but um, a fair amount. Was, last time I checked, at the time it was printed, it was definitely one that would have been really good in modern. And uh, now is the first time you can actually play it in modern, just as historic and pioneer are taking off. Mm-hmm. So. With Contained Priest, it has a uh, flash. It's a 2-2 creature. Uh, it has flash. It says, if a non-token creature would enter the battlefield and it wasn't cast, exile it instead. Uh, basically, this is a pretty straightforward effect. Uh, if they ca- if your opponent casts a creature, or, I mean, for that matter, if you cast a creature, uh, nothing abnormal will happen. It will resolve and enter the battlefield as normal, assuming that it's not countered. Uh, it doesn't matter where you cast it from. If you have something that lets you cast spells from the top of your library, that still works. If you can cast spells from your graveyard, that still works. If you can cast Glacial Worm from your library, it doesn't matter. That's That still counts. Uh, what Containment Priest stops is putting uh, creatures that are not tokens onto the battlefield uh, that weren't cast. So if you search your library and put it onto the battlefield, or if you have something that puts a creature from your graveyard onto the battlefield... Uh, containment priest will stop it um we don't have very many effects like that in standard at the moment uh, i'm wondering if we're going to have a bunch of effects like that in standard soon because this card is printed uh but we'll see um this is it's important to note that this ability does not interact with tokens if a token would enter the battlefield uh it does, doesn't stop it from entering the battlefield it isn't exiled instead uh if Something that would that is normally not a creature, a non-creature card, uh, and it wasn't cast and is entering the battlefield as a creature. So, for example, if you have uh, a card in play that makes all creatures or all enchantments creatures, uh, and you're playing an enchantment, it's going to be exiled because the uh, replacement effect will look to see what it will be on the battlefield. Uh, this is different from when we were talking about. Uh, Conclave Mentor earlier. Conclave Mentor won't see its own replacement effect, uh, but this is a thing that would that would affect the characteristics of a card. So we do look ahead and see that uh, we see that it would be a creature and it's exiled instead. Um, let's see here. Uh, that means the opposite is also true uh, for what it's worth. So if you have a you know, Heliod that's going to enter the battlefield, but you don't have enough uh, devotion that it would be a creature. Um, assuming you didn't cast it, because I guess if you cast it, it'll enter the battlefield anyway. But let's say it's entering the battlefield from your graveyard. Uh, if your devotion isn't high enough for it to be a creature, it won't be exiled. 
notably, a weird aside on devotion, uh, that's also true if it would give you the last devotion and make itself a creature. It doesn't see that on the battlefield because devotion is not a characteristic of a permanent. And let's see here. Other than that, if a containment priest is somehow enters the battlefield without being cast, just like Conclave Mentor, it won't see its own replacement effect and it won't exile itself. Cool, cool. That's some, that's wow, some that was a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, I that just ruined your segue. Sorry about that. It's it's a it's a ton. It's a ton in just one little casual sentence. You know, I kind of like, wish that this card was printed was was in a corset last year to have affected Arclight Phoenix. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. There is there is Arclight Phoenix. But Arclight Phoenix that's is going to be in standard for all of like a couple of months. And like, I guess it still matters for historic and uh, pioneer though. And obviously yeah, I, modern. I kind of wonder if this card was actually printed for historic. Yeah, I think it was. Oh. Uh, the next card is discontinuity, and I wanted to talk about this card because I have a love of Sundial of the Infinite. Uh, but discontinuity is a card for three blue, blue, blue. It is an instant uh, first ability. It's got uh, two abilities. Uh, as long as it's not your turn, the spell costs. Oh, sorry. As long as it's your turn, the spell costs two blue, blue less to cast. So it'll cost one and a blue if it's your turn. And it contains the other abilities, just three, three little words. End the turn. Uh, and then there's a whole lot of reminder text as to what that means. So ending the turn means that we're going to do the following steps in order. Okay. And there's no opportunity for anybody to respond. All right. So all spells and abilities on the stack are exiled. Uh, even the stuff that says it can't be countered, it's, it's exiled. So that's effectively countering it. Any attacking or blocking creatures are removed from combat. Tapped creatures that you tapped with to attack stay tapped. We run through the list of state-based actions, do anything that we need to do there. Nobody gets priority yet, so anything that, that triggered is still waiting to go on the stack. Uh, the current step or phase ends, and the game jumps right to cleanup. Now, the cleanup step happens per normal. You know, you discard the cards, things that last until end of turn go. And then if there's any triggers waiting to be put on the stack... They are put on the stack and resolve as normal. Also, uh, if a spell says, or if a, if a permanent has a trigger that says, at the beginning of your next end step, do X, gain a life, return a card back from your graveyard, whatever, that's not going to happen because you went directly to cleanup, which is after the end step. Okay, so that's, those, those triggers are going to sit there and... Wait, like if you have a delayed trigger or something like that that's been set up, it'll just wait until the beginning of the next end step to actually happen. Now, one of the cool things that I love to do with these end of the turn cards is um, there's a lot of cards that have like a delayed trigger that says at the beginning of your end step, you know, like sacrifice this creature or something like that. You put the trigger on the stack and then you end the turn. And what happens is is all those all those triggers that happen well, they just go away. They don't. They don't happen because it was like a set of a, of a delayed trigger that only happened one time. It happened. It's one time. So, <laughs> if you have like a kiki jiki or something like that that makes a makes a copy of something that you have to sacrifice at the beginning of your next uh, next end step, trigger goes on the stack to sacrifice it. In the turn, you get to keep your token copy, and it didn't. It just cost you. You know, it's better with like Sundial of the Infinite 
uh, because it's that's a reusable effect. But uh, this is great. This is also if you're playing uh, EDH and someone is taking a very, very long time to explain what discontinuity does, you can just end the turn <laughs> and then you go on to the next card in the release notes episode. In the release notes episode, uh, which is one that I'm going to indulge myself a bit on. Uh, so going to get real for a second here. Uh, so it's been a while since most of us have been a long, long way from home. And each morning feels like another blue morning, blue day. Uh, if you feel things my way, you know how I feel about this card and that it's urgent. So urgent for us to discuss. Some might call me hot-blooded, but check it and see. I assure you I'm cold as ice. I'm willing to sacrifice my time for you, filling your eyes with this double vision. And if I just lost you, uh, I encourage you to go out and look up a band called Foreigner, and maybe then you'll you'll understand. Uh, so, this card is a 5-mana enchantment, 3 red-red for an enchantment. It says, whenever you cast your first instant or sorcery spell each turn, copy that spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. Seems pretty simple so far. So, important things to keep in mind. If you play an instant or sorcery on the turn you're casting double vision before you cast it, you won't get to copy it, and the next one you play won't count either. This is another example of a card that has knowledge about the whole turn. So it looks at the turn and says, is this instant or sorcery you're playing the first one? If so, I'll trigger to copy it. But if you've already cast an instant or sorcery spell that turn, it's not going to trigger. Uh, the copy is created, even if the spell that, that caused this triggered ability to exist gets countered or goes away, gets removed from the stack for some reason, the, as soon as the triggered ability from Double Vision happens, it's going to resolve and make a copy of that spell, uh, regardless of what happens to the spell that caused it to trigger. Because it's not, it's not targeting and it's not looking at it. All it knows is, hey, I want to make a copy of this thing, and it remembers all the information about that thing. Uh, the copy will start, basically, with the same targets as the spell that you are copying, unless you change them. It says you can choose new targets. You may choose new targets. By default, it will have uh, the targets of the original, but realistically, because you get to pick new ones, uh, you may. And you... yeah. Uh, I lost my train of thought. Ah, okay. So, if you're copying a modal spell, so if you're copying something that has choices on it for for different modes, you're gonna... you get you have to copy those same modal choices. So if you copy one of the... the what are they Commands. called? Commands. Thank you. Uh, if you copy one of the one of the commands, then you're gonna copy those same modes, whichever ones are picked. So if you're copying a cryptic command for counter and draw, uh, which then you're you're gonna have those same modes: counter, target spell, and draw a card. You don't, you don't get to pick the other ones. You don't get to pick to have the copy tap your opponent's team and bounce a thing. Uh, if if it, the copy if the spell had X in it. Uh, the double vision will be copying that value of X. So if you've got a X and a red spell, if it's copying a fireball for X and a red, and X is 5 on the original spell, X is going to equal 5 for the copy that double vision puts on the stack. Uh, you can't choose to pay or not pay any additional costs for the copy, because you're not casting the copy. It's, it's, it is going to copy the fact that those additional costs were paid, on the original spell, if you paid them there, but you can't choose to pay them 
for the copy if you didn't pay. You can't choose to pay them for the copy, period. Uh, it's only going to get those additional effects if the additional costs were paid with the original spell. Uh, and then lastly, as, as I already mentioned earlier, copy just gets created as an instance of that spell on the stack. It was never cast for things that care about spells being cast. So it's not going to trigger your gutter sniper. What? Well, I want to thank you for uh, having faith in me and letting me go unfettered for my nice foreigner diatribe at the beginning of this card. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty good segue into our next card, uh, which is uh, Faith's Fetters. Uh, Faith's Fetters is one of the more expensive pacifism effects that you're going to see in a core set. It costs four mana for an aura that can enchant any permanent. And when it enters the battlefield, you gain four life, and the enchanted permanent can't attack or block, and its activated abilities can't be activated unless they're mana abilities. Uh, so a couple of things about this. Because it says enchant permanent, you can enchant planeswalkers with faith fetters to keep them from using their loyalty abilities. And those loyalty abilities can't be used even if they make mana, because that's not a mana ability by definition. Mm-hmm. Uh if the target is illegal when uh, Faith's Fetters tries to resolve, it won't enter the battlefield, so you're never going to gain life. Uh, and that's our obligatory dealing with illegal targets talk for, uh, <laughs> for, for this, uh, this episode. Um, interestingly, even though it stops those activated abilities, it does not stop static abilities, triggered abilities, or mana abilities. So if you, uh, if you Faith's Fetters your opponent's uh, Teferi Time Raveler, uh, it still uh, has the effect that you that you can't cast spells uh, uh, during your opponent's turn. So it's very sad. Um, and that's pretty much all I have to say about Fitz Fetters. Uh, it's actually a really good limited card, despite the fact that it looks like it's very expensive. All right, the next card is Ghostly Pilferer. It's one in a blue for a 2-1 Spirit Rogue. Whenever Ghostly Pilferer becomes untapped, you may pay two if you do draw a card. Whenever an opponent casts a spell from anywhere other than their hand, draw a card, and then you can discard a card, uh, and Ghostly Pilferer can't be blocked this turn. So the the first sentence, whenever whenever Ghostly Pilferer becomes blocked, you may pay two if you do draw a card. So the most common way this is going to become untapped is during the untap step. You swung with it last turn, and now it's untapping. Um, during the untap step, no one gets priority. Okay, what's going to happen is. When we move into upkeep, we did have a triggered event sitting there waiting to happen, so it's going to go onto the stack at the beginning of the uh, uh, the upkeep step. All right. Uh, now it says you may pay two when it becomes untapped. You may pay two. That doesn't mean and draw a card. Uh, that doesn't mean that I can pay four mana, six mana, eight mana, and draw two, three, four cards. That'd be crazy. Uh, the second ability, which is whenever an opponent casts a spell from anywhere other than the hand, draw a card. You're going to draw a card. Um, you get to that 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 ability is going to resolve even if the spell that the opponent cast was countered, and you're going to that ability is going to resolve. So you're going to get to draw that card before the opponent's spell resolves. Um, so the way this is going to work is the opponent casts a spell from somewhere other than their hand. You are going to get to draw. And then after you draw the card and get to see what it is, there's going to be another round of like priority passes for both players before that spell, before that opponent's spell resolve. So you could draw the counter spell that you need to to counter that spell. And finally, the last thing is um, if you if Ghostly Pilfer has already been blocked 
you swung, you attacked, and it gets blocked. You can't then say, oh, I want to discard a card, and it, it, it stays blocked. You, you can discard a card to activate that ability in that instance, you, but it doesn't can, do anything. But it's not going to, like, suddenly Ghostly Pilfer is just going to scoot on around that whatever that's blocking right. it. Right, right. Yeah. Hey, it matters uh, a lot for that second combat phase we've got coming up. When I cast a spell that gave me a second combat phase, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. Yeah, my two one's going to survive combat for that. <laughs> After being blocked. Yeah. Yes. Of course. So, uh, next card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next card. That's a great segue. Next card up is Idol of Endurance. Uh, two and a white for an artifact. It's also a white artifact. It says, when Idol of Endurance enters the battlefield, exile all creature cards with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard until Idol of Endurance leaves the battlefield. And then it has an activated ability for one and a white tap. Until end of turn, you may cast a creature spell from among the cards exiled with Idol of Endurance without paying its mana cost. So that's a linked ability. It's, it's linked to the first ability on the card. Uh, it cares about the card that Idol of Endurance exiled from your graveyard with its first ability. Uh, the exiled cards, if, if Idol of Endurance is leaving the battlefield, those creature cards that it exiled are going to go to your grave, go back to your graveyard immediately after it leaves the battlefield. So this is like the um, Banishing Light, I think, was the first new templating O-rings of this style. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like that, only... It's returning them to where it it exiled them from, and here it's the graveyard rather than the battlefield. Uh, right. So there can be an. Ins- oh, sorry. Were you going to say something? Uh, I was, but it can wait. Uh... Okay. So the first ability can potentially end up in a situation where it's resolving, and there's no creature cards in your graveyard to exile. Uh, which you know, that can happen. That's fine. It'll just it'll still be there. Uh, but then when you go to activate that ability, there's nothing for you to cast, right? There's there's nothing for you to make a choice to when that ability would resolve, right? Um, the ability, the activated ability of idle doesn't, again, change... Hold on. Sorry. Totally different. Ah, yeah. So because of the phrasing of the activated ability on idle of Endurance, it says until end of turn, you may cast a creature spell from among the cards exiled. Uh, it it does not let you disobey timing normal timing restrictions for casting those creatures. That's because it's giving you a duration uh, with which you can cast those cards. So once the ability resolves, it just says, until end of turn, you are allowed to cast a creature spell from among those cards, right, without paying its mana cost. Uh, and then the, the difference between that and a spell that, or uh, an ability that says you can cast it and it lets you ignore timing restrictions is that this is not casting the spell as part of the resolution of the ability itself it's just giving you the ability to do so uh, whereas things that are saying cast the spell as part of their resolution have to let you ignore timing restrictions because you can't normally legally cast something in the middle of the resolution of an ability uh, and then lastly if you're casting one of the exiled cards and exiled creature cards. Uh, once it goes to the stack, it's a new object, so it's got you know no memory of 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 uh, 
Idol of Endurance doesn't now remember what that one is. So if it leaves the battlefield, if it gets exiled from the stack, let's say, Idol of Endurance is no longer what exiled it. So it's not going, you're not going to be able to then cast it again on a later turn, activating that ability. Wow, Did that's I cover a lot what of you, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Did I cover what you were going to talk about, Jess? Or uh, is there... I know you didn't, but that's okay. Because, and the reason that I stopped is because I realized that the card I was going to cover next, I was going to have the opportunity to talk about it with that card as well. So the next card is uh, Kite Sail Freebooter. And Kite Sail Freebooter uh, has a similar but totally different ability. Uh, <laughs> but it also has flying, but, but that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, it that's says the ability when, that's similar but different, yeah, right? Uh, yeah. Kite Sail, <laughs> uh, Kite Sail Freebooter says, when Kite Sail Freebooter enters the battlefield... Target opponent reveals their hand. You choose a non-creature, non-land card from it. Exile that card until Kite Sail Freebooter leaves the battlefield. Uh, so this is a similar effect. It doesn't, instead of taking a card from the graveyard, it takes a card from your opponent's hand, uh, and it has a duration. It says, until Kite Sail Freebooter leaves the battlefield. And what I was going to point out about that is that a lot of people think of that as as two linked abilities. You, you've got uh, like the old Oblivion Ring effect that you talked about, where something is exiled with one ability and then it's returned with another ability. But this is a single ability that creates mm-hmm. two separate effects, which is a little weird, but it's not quite the same as linked abilities. What it means is, if you have a Kite Sail Freebooter in play, or if you have an Idol of Endurance in play for that matter, and somebody does something that makes it lose all abilities, and then it leaves the battlefield, you're still going to get your card back. Uh, because that duration and effect were set up when this triggered ability resolved, it's not something that's on the card waiting around to happen. Uh, similarly, uh, that duration is set up when you when you play this ability. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. And when you uh, have it on the stack, if somebody kills your Kite Sail Freebooter in response, obviously they're not going to be exiling a card from your hand because the duration, until this leaves the battlefield, has already uh, expired. However, they will still get to look at your hand. That's also part of this ability. So as long as the opponent is a legal target for the spell, uh, they'll still get to look at your hand. But that actually brings back a point that I didn't cover on Idol of Endurance. Uh, similarly, when if Idol leaves the battlefield before that first trigger resolves, nothing's going to end up getting exiled from your graveyard mm-hmm. because... The duration has already expired. This matters if it's coming up against a card like Sir Conrad, where you might think, oh, it it exiles them immediately, puts them back, and then Sir Conrad dings them for however many creatures that was. Uh, No, they never get exiled in the first place, because the duration has already expired by the time the ability would resolve. Uh huh. Idle Endurance also has a, another effect, and I'm sorry to keep going off about this card, uh, but you may remember that the commander rules changed recently. I don't know if you've talked about that yet on this show. Um, but the commander rules uh, changed such that uh, the if your commander would go to your graveyard or to exile, there instead of instead of being a replacement effect that lets you put it in the command zone, there is a tree. I'm sorry, a state based action that, that that lets you choose whether to put it in the command zone. If Idol of Endurance exiles your commander from a graveyard, that state based action will hit again when it is exiled. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so when you when you play Idol of Endurance, if for some reason you had decided to leave your commander in the graveyard and now you want it in the command zone, you exile all these cards and you can choose to put your commander in the exile or in the command zone now. 
Sorry for that right, little that tangent. No. Got the con- converted mana cost, yeah. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, assuming it meets the other requirement yeah. as well. Right, right. Assuming uh, it could be exiled. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the the next card is Mangara the Diplomat, or Mangara, depending on where you put the do the syllable breaks. Um, no, it's Mangara. Uh, for three and a white is a 2-4 human cleric with lifelink that says, whenever an opponent attacks with creatures... If two or more of those creatures are attacking you and or planeswalkers you control, draw a card. And then whenever an opponent casts the second spell each turn, draw a card. There's another one of those second spells. Um, so I'm going to touch on the intervening if clause in just a second. But first, it's uh, let's, let's just talk about the attacking. So if your opponent attacks you with one creature and your planeswalker with another creature, they're still attacking you with two creatures that are attacking you or a planeswalker you control. Um, so the, the second one is, uh, the second, uh, sorry, the last triggered ability, whenever an opponent casts, uh, their second spell each turn, draw a card. That's basically all the same stuff as, uh, ghostly, ghostly pilfer, which I just talked about, which is that drawing of a card is going to resolve before, uh, before the spell did. Now let's let's talk about this this weird intervening if clause here. It says whenever an opponent attacks with creatures, comma if two or more of those creatures are attacking, uh, you or a planeswalker you control, comma draw a card. Okay, so that's an intervening if clause. Uh, that statement has to be true when the trigger goes on the stack, and it has to be true when the trigger goes to resolve. So now the question is, well, what happens if? Some or some or all of those creatures disappear while that trigger is on the stack. Well, it turns out it's a little little different. Um, so, if some of the attacking creatures leave the battlefield while Mangara's trigger is on the stack, uh, you're gonna you're gonna use the player or the planeswalkers that those creatures were attacking before they left to determine whether or not you're gonna draw a card. However, if they're removed from combat without leaving the battlefield you're going to use the current information to determine whether or not they're attacking you or the planeswalkers you control anymore. So that seems a little weird because if, if the creatures are just removed from combat, then I go, Oh, well the intervening if clause doesn't apply anymore. But if those creatures are actually removed from the battlefield, then we actually use last known information. And it's, it's a little, it's a little weird and it gets into some, some nitnoids of the, of the rules, but that's the way that works. Oh. Nitnoids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, we had we had some conversations about this today because we were like, I don't think we would have ruled that right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. Straight up, I'm guilty. I read it and went, what? When I read uh, what the release note said, and then we did some digging in the rules and went, oh, oh, no, that does use last known information. It's, yeah, it's, you're not used to evaluating and intervening if like that i guess uh it's cool though you know i like that uh it can still be challenged by new cards that they're printing uh that don't have a pile of rules that take multiple pages to explain uh so the next (laughs) card to talk about (laughs) is uh nine lives i'm actually really excited about this uh enchantment so it's a one white white uh for an enchantment it has hexproof it says if a source would deal damage to you Prevent that damage and put an incarnation counter on nine lives. It says when there are nine or more incarnation counters on nine lives, exile it. And finally, when nine lives leaves the battlefield, you lose the game. So first off, 
if damage uh, can't be prevented, so for example, uh, your opponent casts Stomp targeting you while you control 9 lives. Stomp says damage can't be prevented this turn, Stomp deals 2 damage to any target. Uh, it will still give you an incarnation counter, because the the incarnation counter is not contingent on it successfully preventing the damage. It goes, source would deal damage to you. All right, well, let's prevent that and also put an incarnation counter on this. And it's not, it doesn't care if one of those things can't happen. It will also prevent the damage if, for whatever reason, an incarnation counter can't be put on nine lives. I forget if Solemnity prevents counters from being put on enchantments, but I think it does. So I think that combos with this card. Uh, each source of damage results in an incarnation counter. So if you've got three creatures in combat that are uh, all damaging you at once, you still get three incarnation counters and it will prevent damage from each of those sources because each, each creature is a source of damage. So it's going to prevent counter, prevent counter, prevent counter. Uh, so it can get more than nine in this way and says when there are nine or more on it, exile. Right, so it acknowledge the card itself acknowledges that it can exceed its namesake. Uh, the first triggered ability, the when there are nine or more incarnation counters on nine lives, exile it. That's what we call a state trigger. So state triggers don't trigger again by design when it when their triggers are already on the stack. So they're they sit around and go, is is my trigger up there? Okay, cool. I don't need to infinitely trigger myself because my condition's still true. Well, my trigger's up on the stack, so I don't need to put another one up there. However, if that trigger gets removed from the stack, and the state that this trigger is checking for is still true, so if there's still nine or more incarnation counters on nine lives, uh, it will trigger again, it will put another one on the stack. Because now there isn't one on there, and it says, hey, I, I'm still true, and I need one of these out there. Uh, last thing I wanted to say about this is, a, like, I want a harmless offering this, uh, to somebody and have a cat tribal deck <laughs> that has no cat creatures in it. <laughs> nice. I like it. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. The next card is very disturbing. Uh, it is called <laughs> Peer into the Abyss. And this is where this is where Brogan would start telling me about how we're talking about the art of a card on a podcast, and I should stop. But uh, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna discuss it anyway. It's a little like gremlin thing that has this uh, some uh, weird looking person or whatever that has the same person's face in its eyes and also its mouth, which has the same person's face in its eyes and also its mouth and so on. It's very disturbing. It's upsetting. Uh, it is a grotesque fractal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a grotesque fractal. Now, uh, somebody, I assume Jacob put in here that if this isn't the grossest looking card in the set, it challenges me to find a worse one. But I think that the art on discontinuity is actually worse. Uh, it's because it, it's got this weird thing with this person's like fingers being cut off. It's really grotesque. Yeah, um, that's that's actually kind of real in a sense. Right. Like, that could actually happen. I'm never going to have a mouth. I'm never going to have a face coming out of my mouth. I'm uh, not going to tell you you're wrong for feeling what you feel because that's you're like, you're like, right. Your feelings are valid, wait, but wait, they're not. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so hold on, hold on for just a second. Is what I'm feeling that a face is never going to come out of my mouth? Is that what you're telling me that I'm no, not no? Wrong I'm about? talking to Jess. I oh. apologize. I I would hope that it is true that a face is never going to come out of your mouth with a face in coming out out infinitum. But uh, you know, <laughs> who can say? All right. 
I don't I don't know. We're still early in the so, quarantine. Give me another yeah. month or two. <laughs> sure. And maybe we'll see. So Peer into the Abyss says target player it's a sorcery. Target player draws cards equal to half the number of cards in their library and loses half their life. Round up each time. What half is gets determined when the spell resolves. So you can't try to like mill your opponent's uh half of your opponent's library away in response to the spell or anything like that um whatever it is you do to them before this resolves it won't matter because it determines the half at the time it's resolving um the only time it's going to kill a player is if they're at one life because if a player is at one life then it rounds up to one and they lose one life that's pretty much all there is you also can't can't uh deck somebody with this for the same reason um since one or two uh, we'll round to one. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, the next card is Pursued Whale. Uh, for five blue blue, it is an eight eight whale that, from an art standpoint, is smaller than the five five colossal whale, which is a problem. It is an it's eight. Not, this, guy, this guy looks a lot more aggressive than colossal whale, though. I would say, well, well sure, but I, its I would... eye, its eye is significantly yeah, smaller than that we're gonna ship. do this we're gonna do this art thing again but uh yeah this guy looks armored first of all it's not just a whale that's an armored whale it's got a heck of an underjaw with lots of teeth and those look like teeth i'm just i'm just saying that this thing would be like on colossal whale this would be like you know how those sharks swim and they've got like those lamprey eels or whatever stuck uh-huh. to the side of them this uh-huh. would be like a lamprey eel stuck to the side of the colossal whale like a sucker like, fish it, yeah, it could it could bite the colossal whale and it wouldn't even notice. Man, I hate I would, I just I keep would catching them in that maybe you're, I would argue that maybe you're putting too much stock in appearances and maybe you should uh, acknowledge the truth on the card itself and then frame your reality around the facts. I'm because <laughs> it I'm can saying, be the colossal whale stat wise. I'm saying that, <laughs> okay, so that the colossal whale should be. If you're going to argue okay, so, that the text on the card says what that picture should be doing i would like whippoorwill to have some words with you oh okay you know you got me you got me yeah (laughs) sure sure yes absolutely and like the wretched should be able to fly too right unless you're gonna argue that it's got too many holes in its wings and and there shouldn't be any creatures with sneaky reach but right mm -hmm. right nether shadow should fly too right yep um all right so pursued whale what the card text actually does as opposed to art debates is when pursued whale enters the battlefield each opponent creates a one one red ahab pirate creature i'm adding that word ahab it creates a red pirate creature token with this creature can't block and creatures you control attack each combat if able um, and then spells your opponent's cast that target pursued whale costs three more to cast. I really <laughs> wish, I really wish this card had been white. Oh yeah, right, the white whale. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all right, oh, that would have been so much better. Oh, oh. well, we, we actually okay. So this is this is Moby Dick. This is <laughs> this really is this is, this is Herman Herman Melville made magic card. So the ability of the pirate token affects all of its controller's creatures, not just the pirate. So it says this creature can't block. That's the pirate. The pirate can't block. But then it says creatures you control. That's you as in the pirate owner now. 
pirate controller, creatures you control attack each combat if able. So everyone's basically going after this whale. Although they might not be able to catch it because it's probably been attacking and swinging. Okay. Uh, you still have to worry about, like, requirements and restrictions, creatures that are required to attack. Like, if a creature requires a mana cost in order to attack, you don't have to, you know, you're not forced to pay that mana cost. All right. Um, and then just the spells your opponents cast that target Pursued Will cost three more to cast. That's just, that's just good flavor <laughs> right there. And we won't even talk about the, uh, the Star Trek first contact quote that, uh, the Moby Dick quote. Well, we will talk about it in the fact that we won't talk about it. But well, uh, well, but Picard said if his chest had been a cannon, he would fire his heart upon it. Um, and that segues nicely into our next card, Rada, Heart of Kel. It's not what Herman Melville said, though. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Rada, I didn't know you were such creature. a literature purist, Brian. What is going on? I'm just saying, <laughs> if you're gonna quote a book, actually quote the book. But then we had we had the conversation beforehand wow. that it was really just the universal translator. I think that was just yeah. saying that it was just the universal translator translating it from whatever language they're actually speaking into the English that we hear. Yes, it, it was nice. translating it into modern colloquial. Uh, so Rada, Heart of Keld, is a legendary creature. She says, as long as it's your turn, Rada, Heart of Keld has first strike. She also says you may look at the top card of your library any time. And you may play lands from the top of your library. And then she has an activated ability. Uh, she's four, it's six mana. Rada gets plus X plus X until end of turn where X is the number of lands you control. She's a three three. So this is actually a repeat of a point we've already discussed on Conspicuous Snoop, right? This is if something allows you to cast the top card of your library or would otherwise change the top card of your library as part of the process of doing a thing. You don't get to look at that n that new top card until you finish doing that thing. So that's actually, since we've already covered it, I'm just pointing out that this is the same for Rada, and I don't think we have to beat that drum anymore. That's it. The drum has been beat. <laughs> All right, well, uh, next up we have Ruined Halo, which is not a new card, and also has kind of creepy art, because it's got one of those Morningtide Kithkin on it, uh, with the big eyes. And... Anyway, Rude Halo says, as Rune Halo enters the battlefield, choose a card name. And it also says you have protection from the chosen card name. You can't be targeted, dealt damage, or enchanted by anything with uh, that name. Uh, so you have to choose a card name. You can't, for example, choose token names. It has to be the name of an actual card. So I couldn't say, I choose a Goblin. That's not how that works. You have to choose, you know goblin guide or it's the name of some other specific goblin goblin arsonist goblin arsonist or yeah similar uh if a card has more than one name such as split cards or adventure cards uh choosing one of those names doesn't give you protection from the other so for example uh if i cast ruined halo and i name bone crusher giant i do not have protection <laughs> from stomp which is the other half of that card mm -hmm. uh <laughs> why is that so funny i just because because i immediately went to i think there's like a performance company called stomp yes <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where my brain went um so you don't have protection from stomp if you have protection from bone crusher giant 
And similarly, you don't have protection from Bone Crusher Giant if you have protection from Stomp. Or Stompies, the shoes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we did cover protection, generally speaking, earlier. Uh, keep in mind that the the damage prevention that the protection gives you is still prevention. So one weird thing that could come up is if you if your opponent attacks you with a creature and you have protection from uh, that creature's card name, um, and your opponent stomps something and says damage can't be prevented this turn, you're still going to take damage. Yeah. Because that damage will not be prevented. That's all I got. Yep. All right. That's very uh, true. Next, yes. The next card we're going to talk about is See the Truth. It's a sorcery for one and a blue. Look at the top three cards of your library. Put one of those cards into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. If this spell was cast from anywhere other than your hand, put each of those cards in your hand instead. It's pretty sweet. I'm excited um, about this card. Gonna be honest with you. Right. Like this this is a great one to like flash to get flashback or some other way to cast it. Oh, mm-hmm. it's good. So a uh, few, few things. Few things of note that the first sentence is look at the, or sorry, the first two sentences look at the top three cards of your library. Put one of those cards in your hand, and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. Okay, that's all fine and good. But now we've got this: if the spell was cast any from anywhere other than your hand, put each of those cards in instead. So this is what's called a self replacement effect. So so normally there is an uh, a self replacement effect is basically a replacement effect in an ability that that changes how the card would normally work. And that's what this is doing. It's saying normally what you would do is I would just draw the one card and put the two away. But if this condition, do this other thing instead. When evaluating replacement effects, we we talk about there's multiple replacement effects. The person who's affected gets to decide in what order to apply them in. There actually is an order of replacement effects. And one of those bits of order is self-replacement effects apply first. So you don't actually get to choose in that regard mm-hmm. so okay yeah yes this is interesting so you wait what you're saying is if, if you have a card if, if you see the truth and you have a card that says you know if you would uh look at uh, a card from your library instead look at you know two more i don't know if such a card exists i don't think it does but if it did right. uh you wouldn't get to do that if you cast it from the graveyard you would just put the three cards in your hand instead yep uh so the other thing to note is it says, if this spell was cast from anywhere other than your hand. If, see, the truth is, you somehow give it flashback and you cast it. Okay, so now it's on the stack. And then I do something to copy it. Okay, I can say, well, I didn't cast it from my hand. Well, that's not actually what the, the condition is looking for. It says, if it was cast from anywhere other than your hand. So in order to get all three of the cards, you've actually got to cast it. And a copy, generally speaking, isn't cast so you you just get the 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 look at the top three cards and put one one in um and there is even an exception to this in standard uh so creates the copy in exile and you cast it from there yes um Mm -hmm. and that that is uh uh crud what's the name of the card it's one of the the gods uh from war the spark yeah it's the blue one yeah yeah it's kefnet god eternal kefnet you reveal the first card you draw and you copy the card and can cast you may cast the copy and the copy costs two less. Right. So yep. so that if you use that ability, you have cast the copy. So you really have to watch the wording there. Some things will say create a copy or copy a spell. And some things will say cast a copy or cast the copy. And in those cases, you actually cast it instead of just creating it. It's very similar to this distinction between 
something that is currently attacking and something that did attack. Uh, it really just depends on the wording and what actually occurred there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, so I have the next card, uh, which happens to be, I won't say a doozy, but it's certainly an interesting card and an interesting choice in this time. Uh, Teferi, Master of Time. New, new Teferi Planeswalker in the set. Uh, this card's got a bunch of different arts, but what we're going to talk about are Teferi's cool, cool rules text things. Uh, Teferi says, you may activate loyalty abilities of Teferi Master of Time on any player's turn, any time you could cast an instant. Cool. Uh, plus one, draw a card, then discard a card. Minus three, target creature you don't control phases out. And then it's got some fun little reminder text about what that means. And then minus 10, take two extra turns after this one, sure. So, uh, cool. That static ability, that you may activate loyalty abilities of Teferi Master of Time on any player's turn, anytime you can cast an instant, due to a consequence of one of the rules, specifically 6063, this will let you activate loyalty abilities of Teferi on your turn, and also your opponent's turn, for each turn cycle. Because the rules say uh, you can activate the ability... Normally, the, the rule is you can activate the ability only any time you can cast a sorcery during your turn, right? But this is saying you could do it on an opponent's turn any time you can cast an instant. The rules, the only part of that rule that still, uh, that still applies is did you do it this turn or not? Well, if you haven't done it on your opponent's turn again, you get to go again. So you can, in fact, play this. It starts on three loyalty plus it on your turn, and then minus three to phase out an opponent's creature on their upkeep. Also, phasing. I'm really surprised Brian didn't want to talk about phasing. It's it's. I'm actually a little disappointed uh, that phasing appeared on only one card. Yeah, I when I saw it uh, spoiled, and my recollection, by the way, is wrong. Uh, I thought that the Planeswalker Commander one let you do this, but it doesn't. Oh, no, his emblem does. No, that's right. Yep, his emblem does. So this this has already existed before. Um, so if they're changing the rules, they haven't given us a heads up. Uh, and the, the notes and clarifications do point this out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, talking about phasing. So phasing is back? Kind of. Uh, it's it's only talking about phasing out. And phasing's a, it's a little weird. Uh, phasing something out doesn't make it leave the battlefield. And when something phases in, it doesn't enter the battlefield as a result of that. It's basically when you phase something out, it's there, but it's treated as if it doesn't exist, right? So it's 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 in limbo. Um, I am given to understand there was a metaphor involving a mug on JudgeCast before my time. Uh, but generally speaking, I just like to talk about it as, you know, you it, it's there, but... You can't interact with it. It doesn't exist. It's not doing anything to anything that's in play. Um, and then anything that's phased out, phase in during uh, that that controller's untap step, and that happens before anything untaps. So that's actually the first line, if you're looking in the rules at the untap step, the first line of the untap step isn't untapping things. It's phased out stuff phases in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we, we get to care about that again. Uh, that's important mostly so that if something was tapped when it was phased out, it's still on the battlefield, so it doesn't change its tapped on tapped state, so it's phased out and also tapped, I guess. So then when it phases back in, it will then untap as normal, because it's there and 
the untapped stuff gets to apply to. Uh, See, the, the last the, point on, oh, I, I, I want to talk about this mug of phasing real quick. The uh, <laughs> the mug of phasing was a, a way that that I think Brian explained uh, phasing way back in the day, which was <laughs> that uh, all you have to do is take a like a bowl or a mug or whatever you have handy, and if something phases out, you just put that over the card and just keep playing as though whatever's under the mug doesn't exist anymore. And then when you start your turn, right before you untap, you just pick up all the mugs. And that's literally this, how phasing works. Yeah. That's literally how phasing works. <laughs> yep. And that's where the mug of phasing came from. Is it's just a mug you turn upside down over your phased out cards. Um, and, and I'm given uh, to understand there's real mugs of there phasing. There are in out fact there in real the world. mugs of phasing. There, there are there are a couple of different the two different versions of the mug of phasing. Uh, one was made by a fan uh, who uh, who sent it in to us. It was really nice. And then another was uh, was made when I was looking at, at various like mugs and stuff that we could make. I made a, a similar Judge Casperated mug of phasing that I still use to this day. And you um, can get your own mug of phasing at judgecastmerch.com slash right. I'm kidding. That doesn't <laughs> exist. It really should, friends. It really should. Like I'm bad at monetizing. Oh man, all of us are. Uh Judgecast has gone for a really long time without monetizing. Uh it's had a few financial yeah. contributions from some very wonderful people, but um but uh no, you you guys really should. As I said, it's a it's a really useful resource. I think that you should have a way for people who want to to give back because judge cast is and always has been and i assume always will be a free content source and people mm-hmm. should be able to help with that um and as we know this content has value anyway that's yeah. i'll get off yeah. my soapbox I just, now. I just i just <laughs> don't want to come off as uh as greedy uh which segues nicely into the last point i wanted to talk about on this card so there's a threatened type effect in this set called treacherous greed so it is possible in limited for someone to treacherous greed and take uh, their opponent who controls Teferi, take one of their creatures. And then they, with that Conferi, Teferi, can phase out that creature while you control it. So it will then phase back in during your next untap step, but under the control of its owner. So... <laughs> Yeah, no, because because control effects can end while a thing's phased out. Uh huh. Yeah. So just it won't do it on it won't do it on the untapped step that you think it will, and this is just you know in limited it might happen even, and someone's gonna report that as an arena bug almost assuredly. Um, but yeah, it's gonna wait for your because like it treasure screens a sorcery, so it's gonna wait until the person who cast treasure screen their untapped step to give that person back their thing and you know i'm assuming it's still tapped so it's also not going to untap for Mm -hmm. yeah so like the game doesn't see phased or phased out permanence but you still control them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's so weird yeah it's it's wild uh anyway that's all (laughs) i want that's all i want to say about the fairy master of time we could get into extra turns with this but yeah, there's no, already no, a lot to talk no, about here. No. We you, have... you could also get into like enchantments and stuff like that, and equipment, you know, indirect phasing and all that other fun stuff. And yep, yep, yeah. and the way things used to be, and the way they are now, and there's a bunch of stuff yep. like that. Fortunately, got some history. Fortunately, this card is clearly bad and won't see any play, so we don't have to worry about it. And by nope, that, I not mean at all. this card is fantastic, and everyone is playing bonkers. it. Oh, and uh, also, uh, I don't know if you saw this, Jess. We were talking about it, um, but uh, 
there was a post on the mothership today, an article on the mothership talking about they're looking at making phasing out specifically deciduous. I could see that. Like the phasing keyword sucks, but <laughs> as a thing that happens in terms of just like you do a thing and something phases out, I, I think that's fine. Phasing is really talking not about. Oh, Go they, ahead. They were talking about oubliette in the context of of what of the, an implication of this making phasing out like a regular-ish thing, which uh, is fascinating. It's, it's probably not that bad. Yeah, I don't think it is. Like the, just... the mechanic of if it's if it's phased in, it phases out, and if it's phased out, it phases in is kind of weird, but just... I actually you think know, it I mean, has it's, less weird it's, corners than mutate. Yeah, and it's not... You know, now that they've kind of resolved all the comes into play, leaves play, trigger issues... You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and people understand, people understand, like, if you just exile something for a turn, it's kind of the same thing as phasing it almost. You know, I realize, like, things don't phase back, you know, if I exile with enchantment, the enchantment goes away, that kind of thing. But it's conceptually, it's not, it's not that much different. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the next card. Um, I don't actually know how to pronounce uh, this word for sure. Um, so it's creature. It's creature. <laughs> Okay, R- release the, release the, it's the Kraken. I yeah. say Kraken. Kraken. Okay, you say Kraken, I say Kraken. Well, let's call it, okay, so. Clash of the right, Titans so next we have, says Kraken. Next we have the Tolerian Kraken, and <laughs> it says, whenever you draw a card, you may pay one. When you do... You may tap or untap target creature. This is a really interesting ability uh, because this is what's called a reflexive triggered ability. This is a relatively new thing in magic rules. Uh, There haven't been that many cards with reflexive abilities. And the way a reflexive ability works is that when a spell is resolving or an ability is resolving, uh, it may set up another triggered ability, which is what this does. So Talarian Kraken puts a triggered ability... uh, on the stack that says whenever you draw a card, you may pay one. And it just gives you the option to pay one. It doesn't target anything at this point in time because that's not what that ability does. When you pay one, another separate triggered ability goes on the stack and that has a target and you target a certain creature to, to tap or untap. Now, what this does functionally, and this is important, is it lets you draw the card and look at it before you choose a target for this ability, uh, I guess actually it would anyway. I don't know what I'm thinking. Sorry. Uh, but you get to pay, choose whether or not to pay the one, uh, and, then, and then you choose a target for it. Um, let's see. What, what it does is it lets, it lets your opponent know whether or not you're going to pay the one before they try to, before they do anything to interfere with your ability to target it. So yeah, that's fair. It, it allows the other player to lock you into pain. Um, that's fair. You don't get to target, and then they say, I'll do this thing in response, and you just go, well, I guess I won't pay the one then. Right, um, yeah. Right. And uh, that's fair. Uh, so I misspoke earlier. Uh, you either way would get to draw. Um, there. What's interesting about this is that there is one ability that comes up with some older magic cards. I can't believe I'm saying older magic cards. From the Amonkhet uh, set, mm-hmm. a bunch of cards that have the ability Exert. Exert is worded in the basically the same way, and it functions almost exactly identically. But technically speaking, it's not reflexive triggered ability, uh, which is really weird. But it's functionally the same in terms of how you're going to interact with it, uh, how your players are going to interact with it. Um, if uh, 
if an if you'd have one of these creatures with exert or you'd have a triggered ability um there's a second triggered ability that goes on the stack afterwards uh it's important to note both of those things because both of those things fall under the same category of triggers in the ipg so when you're looking at missed triggers in the uh in the ipg uh, you'll notice that there's a section uh, just for this kind of trigger, and it specifically doesn't use the word reflexive because it also covers exert. Mm. That's yeah, an excellent I, I point. Remember, remember that when the when the policy can't change came out for reflexive triggers, it was like, oh yeah, this handles exert, and then the next update yeah. to me was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we didn't really understand what reflexive triggers were, but it, it still works for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that happened. It was definitely a, a, a policy change that they made specifically for Exert that didn't technically cover Exert, and that's hilarious to me. I mean, some people, I hope, weren't too upset and would hate for anyone to unleash fury on yeah. the people well, who well, do well, good before, work on those documents. I do want to. I do want to call something out. Jess was like, "Oh, it's a reflexive triggers are relatively new. They've been around for three years." Or... Yeah, the game's been around for twenty five. It's relatively new. I know. I'm just I'm just saying how weird it is where it's just like I was like, Yeah, they've been around for like a year. Nope. And then Nope, it's been oh, a while. Nope. Yeah. I'm no, actually surprised it's not more than three, to be honest. Uh the first yeah, the first card that really made a splash with a reflexive trigger was probably Hypothesizal. Mm. Yes. Uh there was Which one was before like that. Heart Heart Piercer Manticore, I think. Uh yep. had a reflexive mm-hmm. trigger. I think that was the first card with with a reflexive trigger. Um but that was uh, rare in hypothesis. Yeah, like there was uh, a Ember, yeah, Emberhorn Minotaur, but nobody ever played that. Emberhorn Minotaur, what does that do? Yeah, that was it, it's uh, it's from Amoncat, it's like uh, oh nope, that's an exert. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the difference is that reflexive triggers only come from uh, are, are created when a spell or ability resolves. An exert is just a static ability that says you may do this while it attacks. Or one of the attacks. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's not actually a triggered ability uh, that's creating another trigger. So it's not technically reflexive, which is like we're just we've just been pedantic for the last five minutes. So I'm sorry about that. Uh, but we should just go ahead and uh, and move on to the next card that we've already segued right. into. So, yep. So the next card is Unleash Fury, and it's basically a dude punching a minotaur. Is that really? It's not is as cool as bear punch, or is that though? just like a giant fish man? I, I it pretty sure it's a minotaur. Like those are. That that That's has a torso and arms and and horns and a and bull face. Pretty sure it's a minotaur. Okay, face. fair. Uh, no, no, I see it now. I see it now. It's just kind of sideways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's it's getting punched, and the the, the face is yeah. doing that slow mo. That's fair. I'm confident okay. it had a plan up until that point. <laughs> it's even got a ring in its nose. All right. Sorry, oh, I distracted you so with the for, fish talk. For one and a red, it's an instant that says double. Ah, you're changing the size of <laughs> double the power of target creature until end of turn. All right. So pretty pretty straightforward. Just double the power. If the power is two, it's now four. If it's three, it's now six. If it's negative seven, it's now negative 14. Yep, yep, that's right. So basic, basically what, what, um, what it's saying is uh, if you take... Uh, the creature gets plus X plus O where X is its current power. Okay, so if it's a 2-4, then its current power is 2, so it's going to get plus 2 plus O. Uh, however, uh, negative um, negative power will cause X to be negative. So a yeah. power of negative 7 will double to a power of negative 14. This is an exception. That- yeah, that's an exception to the rule that says that we don't usually use negative numbers as a result. Mm-hmm. 
uh, power, yep. power and toughness are a specific exception to that. Yep. All right. There is actually one and... other thing about this. Uh, the reason it's yes. important, I'm sorry to barge in on this card, yeah, but the reason it's important that it, uh, that it's doubling is actually a, an effect that is plus X plus O and not technically doubling per se. And that X is set at the time it resolves. And that's important because of the way we handle layers in layer seven, because if we, uh, if we looked at doubling as a situation where, uh, where you got, you know, pl- plus it just doubled whatever it was, we would have to be asking a bunch of timestamp questions and get some awkward answers. <laughs> right. Uh, you'd, you'd be looking to apply a two X and say, well, these are all pluses and this is a two X. When does the two X happen? Exactly. I, I've got, you know, all this stuff. And now because it's, you know, just whenever it resolves, we, that's when we decide it's very straightforward and easy to understand for players uh, because the rules interpret doubling the power as actually getting plus X plus zero where X is whatever its power is right now. Hmm. Uh, sorry for uh, taking us off track, but uh, the next card is an exciting one. Yeah, I'm very happy I get to talk about this and, and take us home with this because I love this card. Uh, it's it. There are very few things these days, regrettably, that warm the cockles of my heart. But when I saw this uh, spoiled, I was... Yeah. Um so this is Rin and Seri, inseparable. So it's one and Naya mana, legendary creature, dog cat, because it is both a cat and a dog. Uh and it's got uh tr- some triggered abilities. It says whenever you cast a dog spell, create a one one green cat creature token. Whenever you cast a cat spell, create a one one dog white dog creature token. Uh so they're always gonna come with a friend. And then it has an activated ability. Uh, for red, white, green, Rin and Siri, and tap, Rin and Siri, the inseparable, deals damage to any target equal to the number of dogs you control. You gain life equal to the number of cats you control. So this card's adorable. Uh, the art is adorable. I highly encourage anyone to go and look at uh, look it up. Um, the one thing I wanted to talk about for this card is those first two triggered abilities, where it says whenever you cast a dog spell, whenever you cast a cat spell, a dog spell or a cat spell is a spell with the subtype dog or cat, respectively. Uh, So, uh, importantly, if you cast a card like, I don't know, Nameless Inversion, which has Changeling, which means got all of them, them, their creature types, uh, it will trigger both of those, because it's a dog spell, and it's also a cat spell. It's a spell with that subtype, because it's got all the creature subtypes. Or Or if you cast a second Rin and Stimpy, Yep. while you've got one on the battlefield... It's if you it's cast a dog cat also. Yep, you will cat get dog. both triggers. Correct. Cog. Cog? Dat. Cog, Cog. dat. <laughs> yes. Um, that's, that is it. Um, there was another set that was released, uh, Jumpstart, that you might want to also check out, but uh, none of the... I, I looked through the cards, there may be some in there that I missed that have uh, interesting things to talk about in there, but generally speaking... Uh, it seemed like most of the uh, the concepts were covered actually in the core twenty twenty one set cards that we discussed. Fantastic! Yes, yeah, so this has been this has been fun, Jess. Thank you very much for for being on and joining us. It's it's been good to have you back, even if it was just for an episode. Well, thanks. I I got to admit that like we finished the last card, and I almost just out of like riding a bicycle type habit, started launching into the uh, the like finisher. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know, like 
it, it, I'm it, just it, about to hit his finisher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do we do we Twitter, Facebook, do we have a Quibi or a TikTok now? No? Okay. No, whatever the kids are doing these days. Uh yeah. I don't I don't Kib. actually know. Like I don't think Quibi is a social media thing. I'm pretty sure that it's just like Netflix for people that don't have an intention span. Actually, like I feel like that product released at the worst possible time. Okay. It released and said, okay, we've got this thing. You know, if you're waiting in line somewhere, you're on the bus, you've got a short amount of time, you've got these little videos you can watch. And then the whole world stayed home and watched Netflix. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think it's it's targeted at us. I know I know my my daughter watches like the 22nd TikTok videos all day. So oh, TikTok is the new um oh god Vine. what was it called it was like Instagram but for video Vine yes the new Vine thank you you're welcome uh, <laughs> anyway rip um, Vine but if uh if if we don't have anything else nope. relevant to this is because I, I kind of don't want to end it because I'm just really enjoying just being on oh, um well, yeah thank you very much I appreciate that but uh, we we should every everything does come to an end eventually uh like this pandemic will. And hopefully in an end that uh, doesn't cost too many more lives. Um, sorry. So, if you want to reach out to JudgeCast, you can contact us uh, via email, judgecast at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter. We are at JudgeCast. You can also, I invite you to reach out to me on Twitter. I am bots are people too. R is the letter R. The rest of those are the words. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. Just look for JudgeCast. You'll find us there. Uh, feel free to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, if there's anything on this episode that you think got wrong or you think that uh, you'd like to discuss more, something you think we missed that you think was interesting, happy to interact on that front. But uh, otherwise, on behalf of myself, Brian Perlman, and, and our guest, Jess Dunks, uh, I'm Jacob Leachich, and I keep it fair. I'm Jess Dunks, and I keep it fun. I'm Brian Perlman, and I keep it phased out. works so much better when you, you've got three people it really does so yes. that brian can do his thing yeah so the first time that brian and i uh had a two-person podcast i think it was after cj left we got to the end and we hadn't discussed how we were going to do it uh-huh and we were just like we have no idea what's going to happen uh and i don't actually remember what happened i just remember not being sure what was going to happen <laughs> uh